Welcome back, everybody, to the Soil Matters. Leighton, this is your friend, so take it away, my friend. Oh, my pleasure. So great to see you again, Charlie. Charlie uh, is an old dear friend of mine. I don't know how, uh, 15 plus, I guess. It's been, it's been a minute. Um, so welcome to the show. Good to see you again, Av. And Charlie, why don't you uh, just kind of introduce yourself to the audience and give them a little backstory and, and where you are now and what you're working on. Yeah, nice to chat with you again, Leighton. We always have a brilliant conversations. You never know where it's going to go. And Av, it's great meeting you for the first time. Um, yeah, Leighton, uh, you and I have been on episodes of various shows throughout the last decade or so. Some of your listeners probably know who I am. Uh, I've been a pioneer in the aquaponic world for the last 30 plus years. And I wouldn't say many people have 30 plus years uh, experience in aquaponics. So that's really my specialty is this water farming. Um, I also specialize in hydroponic production using chemical nutrient salts to, to produce plants. And I, currently I serve as an academic director at Santa Fe Community College. And our program is called Controlled Environment Agriculture. Uh, we used to be called Greenhouse Management. But since I come, came here, we do so much more from rooftop farms, shipping container farms, uh, greenhouse production, indoor uh, grows and that kind of stuff. So it all fits the definition of controlled environment agriculture. Um, I know the program here, Soil Matters. Uh, we're going to get into uh, how I fit in because I don't use soil. Uh, I save soil for farmers who want to work with soils. I often on my facilities, I build soils. So we have an amazing uh, nutrient source and not just nutrients, but a lot of biological activity and fish waste. Uh, some people call it waste and they use that to build compost or build soils. Most of our waste, we actually mineralize, remineralize, break it down into dissolved nutrients. And we don't have a discharge from our facility. Uh, all those liquid nutrients are uh, assimilated by plants in these beautiful coupled systems, uh, what we call coupled aquaponics. And that's mostly what you would see at my facility. So I've been in uh, this industry, like I said, for 30 years. Uh, I focus my, my whole career on nutrient recycling. Um, I, I, it first came about with sustainable eating, and I had changed diets from eating birds and fish, from eating red meat to eating birds and fish. I saw how contaminated our environment was back in the late 80s. We started seeing medical waste wash up on our seashore. Uh, I understood that our open systems were not um, protected from contamination. And Leighton, now you see, I see once a week, uh, stories about wild fish and how contaminated they are. So the days of wild fish versus farm fish are almost over, people. You will not be choosing wild fish much more because either there will be no more wild fish or the ones that are there are contaminated. We don't want to eat them. I get stories every day about fish containing estrogens and opioids, radiation. They swim through raw sewage. Um, we've really thrown our systems out of balance. And again, the days of going out as an industry and uh, catching wild fish for 8 billion people coming, uh, that's a thing of the past if we're looking for clean food. So I focused on controlled environments my whole career. I focused first on aquaculture, moving indoors to produce food, safe food for humans uh, near these centers where populations grow. So near centers of uh, uh, big cities, for instance, setting up aquaculture. And I think that's probably where you and I started to collaborate. Uh, Leighton, you came around looking for fish poop. And you still go around the country looking for fish poop um, because of the, the biological potential that's there. So it's at that time, you and I started to understand what's there. And uh, I have focused my career specifically on that product, on that fish poop, and how can we best utilize that. I've created zero discharge systems. Uh, some systems I run are almost zero supplement besides the fish feed and the rainwater. Uh, so I would say as far as sustainable food production, some of the systems I work with probably produce more food using the least resources of any food system in the world. And I'm glad you're still in this game. And uh, I, I, you and I see all the time the importance of building soil. And there's movements all over the planet now about building soil. So it's, I really appreciate that you can bring somebody like me who focuses on water production because we have so many potential benefits that we can use to build soils as well in these facilities. 
Uh, so I like to look at facilities. I like to look at outputs or waste streams and figure out what we can do with that. Can we make energy off of that? Can we recycle the water? Can we recycle the nutrients? So I have a long list of publications working in, in many of these areas of food, energy, and water. And that's what we focus on here at Santa Fe Community College. And it's why after 30 years in the industry, I am, I am at a community college. Uh, there's no stigma here. We're leading the world. Uh, I have students that come to my class that have master's degrees. I've had students with PhDs, and they come back to a community college to learn how to save the planet. So that's what we're doing now. And that's exactly why you're here today, Charlie, because you are one of the early pioneers of trying to figure out and unlock uh, a lot of the potential that, that we have that we've, that's been kept from us, so to say. Um, so, all right, before we go too crazy, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, remineralization, because I think a lot of people don't understand what that really means. Sure. And it's, it's a, I'm glad you said it right. Uh, I like to refer to it as remineralization. Uh, in this industry, a lot of our papers you'll see is they call it mineralization, but it's really remineralization. And if you took any livestock waste, whether it's fish waste or cow, chicken, pig, uh, that product is in a solid form and it's not available to our plants. It's bound up as solid and it has to go through a process of breaking down into smaller and smaller constituents till eventually you have those dissolved nutrients that plants can bring across their cell walls. Um, I relate it to my students here. If they have a peach orchard in their yard and they put cow patties or cow manure on top of the soil, that tree gets no benefit whatsoever. We have to rely on the microbes, and I know your audience knows all this, the soil food web typically, where it's breaking down those large solids and nutrients into finer and finer nutrients till they're available to the plants. But we do the same thing in the aquatic environment as well. Uh, but we can take that sludge, that, uh, that manure out as a liquid slurry. And what I do is I put it into an aerated septic tank, basically. It's a vessel. I like cone bottom tanks because nothing can settle. If things settle, you'll get that anaerobic zone forming and anaerobic conditions will bleed off all of your nitrogen. So we don't want any settling in a remineralization tank. So cone bottoms are really good. Or if you have a round tank, you wanna make sure you have a bottom circulation. There's no settling. So through the process of adding energy through aeration, and this is sometimes the bottleneck. If you live in a region where energy is expensive, aerobic mineral remineralization may not be the way for you. Uh, but if you can, we add energy through aeration. We feed aquatic uh, aerobic microbes and they consume that food source. They grow biomass and they excrete nutrients until eventually what's left is 99% dissolved water with nutrients. So I can take that supernatant out I push it back over to my aquaponic systems. What's left will continue to digest through the next cycle. And eventually there's nothing left but a little bit of sand and grit that may have come in with the fish feed. So that's remineralizing. And again, we can do this with any, and we should be doing this with every nutrient that we're wasting. And this is the future. I talk with NASA a lot. They're looking at humanure. How are we going to take that humanure, remineralize it to a nutrient solution? So any, any livestock operation should be thinking about creating nutrient solutions off of what some people consider a waste. And that's really how I got into this field as well. Uh, in the early 90s, every aquaculture facility was dumping their waste. They didn't see it as a resource. I saw it as a resource. I studied it. I studied how to utilize it efficiently. And as I mentioned before, I've created systems here now that are zero discharge. So I've run hydroponic systems at scale. I've got a couple that are about 3,000 gallons. And they've been recycling the same water for six years. That's um, a 99.5% recycle rate. All my students did a water budget this semester. We top off 0.5% per day. And any of these waste, it's a sludge that comes out, I remineralize it and I push it all right back into the same system. 
So now I'm not just restricted to growing lettuce and basil, but I grow tomatoes and cucumbers and chili peppers and cantaloupes because I've got that extra nutrient. If you all think about it, when you when we waste, you and I, when a fish wastes and a pig wastes, the majority of the phosphorus is bound up as solids. It's just the same in, in nature. Phosphorus is hard to dissolve and, and make available to our plants. So often in a fish system, we're throwing it away. When you get rid of your solid waste and maybe you put it on your compost or your orchard, but if you're not using it in your aquaponic system, you may not have the phosphorus levels uh, that your plants want to fruit and flower. We, you know all about decoupled cannabis operations where they say you have to put in the P and K in a decoupled system. And I think, Av, you work with a company in Canada, has, they don't do any decoupling. They don't do any tailoring. They're using fish microbes and fish nutrients, and they're winning the awards across Canada for quality as well. So revitalization allows for, uh, for a farm to become zero discharge. Uh, to become low impact and not wasteful to the environment. And you can also monetize it. A lot of the work that's being done in Lethbridge College with Nick Savadov, I left a large grant there. It is literally taking livestock waste through the process of remineralization, aerobic remineralization, to create a nutrient solution so these farmers have an extra income. They don't have to use it on site. You don't have to turn a fish farmer into a hydroponic grower but they could monetize all their waste and package it and bottle it. And we're starting to see products in the hydroponic world, the fish shits and the fish poops and all this stuff. And they all have a little different components, but it's not fish guts. It's not fish emulsion like we all used to use back in the day and open those bottles and they stink because they're fermenting in there. This is that fish water or it's the remineralized fish poop that's ready for your plants and it's not biologically active and transforming in the bottle and creating gases. It's stabilized, ready to go, and it's a great income stream for, again, any livestock grower. Oh, that's fantastic. I, lo I love that, that you've gotten to the point where you, you have zero discharge and you're only water brightening by 5%. That's, that's an amazing 0.5% Layton. Sometimes I say these numbers and I don't think people can relate. When I say 99.5% recycle rate and I'm adding 5.5% per day, I think I've got to start turning it into, do you know how many tons of food I produced with X number of gallons? That's what's really going to relate. And comparing that to traditional field production or even I don't like to compare my systems to traditional field production when it comes to resource and water use. I like to compare my systems to the best precision soil uh, uh, management systems. It's really ridiculous to, for me to compare my system to what we call acequia farming here, our uh, furrow field, flooding your field. That doesn't happen much. I like to compare it to the best models in the world, and I can still show you that I can outcompete those farms as far as water and nutrient reuse. Well said. And, and I, I, I think for the audience, too, so that they better understand that, is that you're really creating... Uh, organic nutrients in an ionic form. So if you take an NPK rate reading, you're not going to show much. It's basically going to be, you know, 0.5, 1, yeah, 0.5, exactly. Tiny, tiny fractions. And the reason why is we just don't have the instrumentation to actually measure um, the ionic forms of these, uh, you know, minerals. So <clears throat> that being said is that the results you're getting are, are proof in the pudding that the minerals are present, just not readable. We just don't have the testing instruments to to justify what we're seeing as a result in the fields. Yeah, a lot of these testing uh, equipments don't work so well in an organic solution. Um, no, no. The, the, there's a reservoir of nutrients there that is so robust. Uh, I wish I could take this computer and just show you my greenhouse on an off day. I don't even have students here and we're just in between. But people come in here and they're amazed at the quality of our product. And we try to stay as uh, as pure as possible in our systems. I don't have a decoupled system currently on campus, but I probably have 15 coupled 
aquaponic systems. Uh, that purist in me where the plants take care of the fish and the fish take care of the plants and I, I can maintain a 99.5% recycle rate, that's the story of aquaponics. Uh, splitting them up into decoupled systems and adding 50% hydroponic nutrients over here, um, it's just to me that's not the way that aquaponics uh, got its start uh, traditionally. And uh, it, while it can be maybe more uh, efficient, I think you lose the whole microbial symbiotic relationship that drives the, the quality of the products, in my opinion. Agreed. And again, you're talking about nutrient-dense food, if we can even use that terminology. Exactly. Um, yeah. But bottom line is, if you take sap and tissue tests from products that are grown in your condition, comparative to traditionally grown foods and, and fruits, you, you're going to see a huge difference and you're going to taste a huge difference. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the plant sap. It's a, a kind of a new tool in our toolkit to, to analyze uh, plants and what they're doing, what they're, what they're really taking up. So we're starting to do that here with our curriculum is doing water samples and the plant sap analysis, sending them away, coming back and making an informed decision. And because we do know what we're doing with hydroponic nutrients, it's very simple for me to go get some boron or molybdenum or any of those other nutrient salts. And these are trace elements, so they're not going to impact the fish, but they're going to definitely make a, a difference in the plant production and photosynthesis and everything else that plants are doing. So I found uh, as, as pure as I, I want to be, I do find that these systems do rely on some supplementation. And if you really know what you're doing with your plant sap analysis and your uh, water analysis as well, uh, have a good understanding of your fish diets and what you're doing for pH regulation as well, uh, then you can get by with very minimal supplements. Uh, I think the UVI system that I ran supplemented about 15% of nutrients. So that's kind of the bar for a lot of people. If we can supplement 15% through pH regulation, uh, a lot of people add chelated iron, for instance. And if you need a little bit of your trace elements, if you keep it under 15%, you're still a purist in a lot of people's opinion. But if you start adding 50% hydroponic nutrients to your water, you're more probably a hydroponic grower that's just using some fish water to top off your system. So there's a lot of classical definitions that are um, we're still um, debating on what is aquaponics. And that will probably never end. <laughs> you know, and we even we can look at soil application, right? Leighton, you and I are Ross growers, everybody that's recirculating aquaculture. So we're fish farmers. And there's many systems in place that do have that flow through that 5% a day, that 10% a day. And why not put it on your soil crops, your orchard, your peach trees or whatever? Um, but is that aquaponics? Uh, usually aquaponics has a loop and a return of the water after the plants have used it. So direct application on your soil. I don't think it's necessary aquaponics. I've actually seen the word trans aquaponics trying to give definitions to all this and labels. And it's just as confusing as my kids gender issues right now. There's a, a new name every week, it seems. Um, I don't see that as aquaponics, but I do see it as feeding your soil aquaculture water and that's that's your that's your bible to preach Leighton. that's what you talk about since i've known you well you know and again the reason i i was basically aquaponics to you so you didn't have to grow the fish because i i would capture the fish waste mineralize it or remineralize it but i didn't go all the way to the level you did i i grew out the biology so that i can then yeah. take the biology mix it with compost and worm castings and produce these uh, what I want to call chocolate teas that are just amazing when they when they hit the soil. Um, yeah, and I, I haven't seen what's what's up in the uh, industry lately, but I think it's a product that's going to take off when somebody really refines it. And there are storage conditions and there's a lot of details. I've seen you work out for decades. How do you get that product to the customer is can you do it through mail or do you have to freeze it or ship it and these kind of things? Or do you drive? 2000 gallons, which weighs a lot, you know, transportation is difficult to get this out to your facility. So it does make sense for some large fish facilities to work on perfecting that remineralization process process and using that land around their facility. And that's where I see a lot of aquaculture uh, building soil. There's so much potential there. Absolutely. And, you know, the way I accomplished what I did was a couple of different ways. 
when I first uh, went to Keith Wilda's farm down in Cape Cod, one of the things I identified was diatoms. And that was that was like, oh, my God, you, you've got it. You've got what I need because they're little oxygen pumps. So they, they prevent that DO from crashing um, based on the biological oxygen demand or the VOD uh, as a, an acronym. Um, and that was that was a huge step forward. And then a couple of years back, actually, God, probably five years ago, I met this guy that had a nano bubbler maker, which I don't know if you've heard about these, Charlie. It's, sure. it's pretty cool. Um, there are some out there that are a uh, little bit, you know, what, what do you call it? aqua shysters? <laughs> but the yeah. one, the one that that uh, I settled on, um, the gentleman actually uh, took a different step, a different approach. So what he did was he created cavitation within the, within the device, and by cavitating the water, it's one of those forces, kind of like gravity. We think we know what it is, but we really don't quite understand what's happening on a, on a microbial or perhaps even further down the rabbit hole. You know, you get into electrons, neutrons, protons, but something's happening there. And what happens is these nanobubbles are created. Um, they're highly stable. As long as you're not agitating, they will remain in suspension until the BOD requires it. And then they implode so that they do not cause harm with the fish. Now, you know, this was one of the things that I worked with Keith in, in trying to understand what is the maximum level of, of DO you can have in the water column and still support aquatic life. And it's about 15 parts per million. Maybe you have more information on that than, than I do. But. I think Nick Savadar, it's a, it's a factor of temperature and elevation and salinity as well. But I think Nick was maintained about 23 parts per million. Okay. It's a super oxygenated system. And that's about the cap. Yep. Yep. And so, and I believe what happens too, is if you get too high, you'll actually burn the, the eyeballs of the fish um, due to oxidizing, uh, which is, you know, obviously very negative effect on the fish. Um, but I was all I was up to 30 parts per million and introduced it to microbes and had no problem whatsoever. So I actually started producing four gallons of the liquid and then putting in one gallon of this high uh, dissolved oxygen liquid and put that into a five gallon bucket and was able to ship it cross country and have it shelf stable. So there are ways of doing it. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah Keith, Keith in in uh, in fish brew is actually. <clears throat> gotten it to the point he's got stuff that's been sitting on the shelf i believe three three and a half years now and still highly stable due to diatoms um, right so so again you know we're the science is, is is getting close to a point where we can produce um you know these these incredible bio biological inoculants and have them shelf stable but again you know there's a couple different ways to look at this again the we're dealing with an inoculant, not remineralized liquid. See, the remineralized liquid is plant available. We're still requiring the microbes to do the mining of the materials and the protozoa to eat them and release them plant available. So I think I think you're a step or two ahead of, of even where we are at this point in time. Yeah, I think they you you would tailor it for the application. Again, always, always. Um, have you done any salmonids? Uh, any, you know, brackish or salt water you know, let me um go ahead and take a moment to let everybody know and ken's in the background he may can find a website for everybody the aquaponics conference uh which is a annual conference it's coming to albuquerque in september september 15 16 17 Leighton, if you need an excuse to get back to albuquerque um, <laughs> but um the keynote speaker is uh, steve sommerfeld um, dr steve sommerfeld runs uh, superior fresh which is the largest aquaponics facility in the world it's located here in the u.s it's in wisconsin and they do cold water salmonids salmonids um, they remineralize their waste and they tailor that nutrient slightly. It doesn't take much because they're sticking with lettuce, um, but they tailor it. And during the process of remineralization, that's an exothermic process. So it creates heat. And so now the water is full of nutrients and it went from cold water fish right to warm water, the perfect temperature for lettuce. I think it's an eight acre lettuce facility um, and it's all fed through the salmon. Uh, so the salmon are sold now. It's a farm raised salmon 
And now that's taking the place of a lot of the wild salmon in some of the most expensive markets. Uh, Farm-raised salmon has a place across the U.S. in every market. It's got this taste that's not too fishy, um, but it's full of omega-3s. And so he's selling all that online now and through different channels. Uh, I think it's $20 a pound for that fish. So now we're talking about a fish that can make money for us. Uh, Most of us challenge ourselves because we grow tilapia. Uh, tilapia is bulletproof. It's easy to grow. It's the perfect temperature for the plants that we're growing. Um, and that's usually why people pick the tilapia, but it doesn't have the market value. Uh, it doesn't have the market demand, although it is right behind salmon as far as what we eat in this country, shrimp, tuna, salmon, and then tilapia. But the price isn't there. So the more we can work with a high value fish like salmon, Um, We need to perfect that remineralization process. That's what it's all about. Uh, In these cases, I would call this decoupled system. The fish take care of the plants, but the plants don't take care of the fish. The plants get the nutrients and then the water goes out the backside to a constructed wetland where the water is reclaimed to be reused, uh, but it's not in a delicate balance anymore. Uh, Another big company, uh, fairly big company doing salmonids is called Habitat. Uh, They're out of BC. Um, Justin Henry is an amazing fish culturist for decades. I've known him and they're coupling that with cannabis as well. Kind of small cannabis flipping real quick rooms and some of the highest quality product as well. So it's coming the higher value fish. Um, Leighton, it's not easy to do high value fish. Sometimes we haven't broken the breeding cycle. Sometimes we haven't broken the early feeding cycle. So we have to culture live animals to feed these larval fish until they can be trained onto commercial diets. So that's another full-time job for somebody, Um, but it's happening. And when you got that aquaculture down, now you're ready to make money. As I said before, um, the idea of wild fish versus farm fish, we're getting away from wild fish. I may have said this before we started recording, but our wild fish are contaminated. I get stories every week about how contaminated uh, fish are from the wild. So the trend is going to be farm fish and people are going to start. They're going to be paying a lot of money. Uh, I go to restaurants now and I always see that high end piece of beef and every restaurant now has that high end fish. And it's the same price as that steak. When I go to the supermarket, you got steak at $15 a pound and there's your fish for $15 to $20 a pound. So I think we're going to continue to see a lot of uh, potential in aquaculture. I saw that in 1990 when I started college, right, 33 years ago. And the uh, graphs are exponential with the increase of uh, consumption of fish and the uh, filling that void through aquaculture since we can't catch any more fish from the wild. So um, other fish, um, Av works with another facility or consults there in Canada. Uh, They're using koi. And um, I think koi is a very valuable fish for these systems because they have a wide temperature range, allowing us to grow crops a little bit cold water side, uh, a little bit of warm water crops as well with the same fish model. Um, A lot of people don't monetize the koi, but they're very valuable. Uh, Some koi are going for $2 million dollars. Um, koi lasts 200 years plus if you do things right. So it's a it's quite an impressive fish. And in many cases, we could just have those fish as the biomass, never harvest fish, never buy baby fish again, just maintain a biomass and then focus on your crops, if that's a goal of yours. Yeah. No, Apparently, I, I, go ahead, Al. I'd love for you to expand and, and um, enlighten me a little bit more around uh, some of the farm fish because... Um, sure. I, I, I think I, I associate a lot of farm fish as not actually having a good balance of omega-3, uh, seeing a lot more omega-6 and 9, depending on, on the feed. Exactly. Um, a lot more GMO um, ingredients in that feed. And then and then we often hear about the, the high use of antibiotics. So I wanted to know in your systems, um, you said yes, almost zero inputs. Um, so... So uh, when I look at fish, uh, the primary uh, variable to couple and and think about with aquaponics is temperature. you got to look at your crop, if it's cannabis or if it's lettuce or if it's wasabi. Um, You know, you got to look at that crop and figure out what temperature does that crop need, because most people are focusing on the crops for their income. So we want to optimize crop production. Uh, We want the right temperature of water. So that's the factor. 
74 degrees, right? That's when I'm going to grow cannabis or many of my tomatoes and cucumbers. So that really, if I want a commodity, I'm at 74 degrees. Now I just got to look at what's available at 74 degrees from tilapia to uh, catfish, to koi, uh, to all these fish that we just mentioned. Uh, the salmon are colder. So it's really hard to couple salmon with plants because of that temperature. Uh, if you want to do salmon, you're going to decouple you're going to warm up that nutrient solution and feed those plants. When it comes to the quality of your fish, you're right. You are what you eat. Um, my fish don't have microplastics. Every fish that you're buying wild is full of, they come with their own plastic, their plastic bag. It's, it's inside. Um, so I could just start there and, you know, we could talk about that. But then I look at my diets. Uh, some diets will have GMO corn and soy and some don't. So you make that that judgment on, on economics as well. I pay a little bit more for a diet that doesn't have GMO ingredients, but that's becoming harder and harder to find. Um, I've also grown these fish since GMO ingredients and fish feed came out 20 years ago, probably. Uh, my fish perform extremely well on these diets, including GMO diets. I'm not 100% against GMO. My fish are healthy, 100% survivability. My feed conversion ratio is extremely low. Um, so I'm not totally against that, but for a marketing reason, I'm going to look for a diet that may not have GMOs. Uh, antibiotics are not used in the U.S. aquaculture industry. Um, if we wanted to, we would have to go to a vet to get a special uh, license, uh, special use on that uh, chemical. Then we can't feed it to a food fish unless we withdraw that for 120 days. Um, honestly, when it comes to treating fish, uh, fish farmers don't treat their fish because they don't want, they never get disease. We do everything on the front end to never have. Shit. He froze. Froze. Did I yeah, freeze? No. You're, you're okay now. Go ahead. Uh, not sure exactly where I dropped, but you are what you eat. Um, so thinking about what you put in those diets, thinking about your water source is extremely important to look at the quality to your final quality of your fish. So some people have wells in this area full of uranium, right? We really have to look at what we're doing. I'm going to talk if we have time about a grant I've got coming up in Navajo Nation because um, we're talking. I'll go ahead and just kind of veer into that a little bit here is we're talking about soil matters. So I just put in a grant with Navajo uh, Technical University, and I was wondering why they're looking at hydroponics. The reason is they are building on a, a NEFA grant that they just completed that analyzed all the soil in their region and just showed the extreme levels of uranium toxicity in the soils. So how are we going to grow food? We're soil matters, and Layton's going to spend 10 years building soil in Navajo community to, to eat up that, um, that uranium, maybe with fungi. It's a long process, right, to reclaim tracts of soil like that. So they want to go into hydroponic and aquaponic production because this is container farming. So this has the ability to be the safest food possible if you do things right. And again, when I see these stories about uh, everything that we flush down our toilet, every chemical ends up back in our system. Your sewage treatment plants go through a microbial remineralization process. They're breaking down the nutrients, um, but they're releasing it with all the chemicals still intact, all your estrogens, all your opioids. So again, I can defend uh, fish farms all day long, um, but the consumer really has to open their eyes to wild fish and what they're eating. I saw this in 1988. When that medical waste washed up on the Atlantic City seashore, um, that was my light bulb moment in my career. And that was the first time we saw that. Now every beach is littered. There's medical waste everywhere, and that's your wild fish. So I kind of leave it to you to decide. Um, Omega-3s, omega-6s, that's about the fish itself. A tilapia is an omnivore, almost a vegetarian, so it's going to be inverted, more omega-6s. I mean, that's also because of the diet. It's a plant-based diet. Um, where omega-3s, those heart-healthy fatty acids, EPAs, DHAs come from, it's not from ocean fish. It's from ocean fish that eat algae. So 
we focus on algae production here. We have algae in our beds. I've often grown green water tilapia tanks, and now my tilapia probably have higher omega-3s uh, than a, a typical tilapia. But those are really good questions you know, to start thinking about. And if you're thinking about the impact of eating fish, you really do need to think about wild fish and what you're putting in your body every day. And if we do that weekly, that accumulates, it's bioaccumulation in our body. So you know, I, I'm pretty strict on, on the consumption of my meats to controlled environments. So Charlie, that brings up a, another question. Um, first of all, when you're dealing with remineralizing um, solvents, uh, manure, what are you doing with the excess salt buildup? That's interesting. Um, so salt often comes in with your fish feed, sodium chloride and such. Salt will also come in with your source water. So if you have well water, analyze it. You probably have some sodium in there. I have about 22 ppm or milligrams per liter of sodium in my source water, which is not good to use strictly as a hydroponics um, water. But we've used that for a long time. And, and it's more of a problem um, latent in your systems accumulating the sodium over time. So if you're remineralizing or you're topping off in a 99.5% recycle system, that sodium keeps building. Plants don't typically use it. It's a beneficial nutrient at a very low level, and some plants really benefit from sodium, um, but it continues to build in a closed loop system. Uh, we ended up with sodium up to 90 milligrams a liter. And now that starts to have that molder effects and it impacts the relationships of other nutrients if you have certain nutrients out of balance. Um, I started to see a little reduced plant production. And my mantra for 30 years is never do a dilution, right? If I just dump aquaponic water, then I defeated that whole 99.5% recycle that I've been telling you about because on one Saturday, I dumped half the system. I never do that. So instead, I looked at um, plants that can accumulate and assimilate sodium. And so when I was at 99 parts per million sodium in my aquaponic water, we converted our entire systems over to kale for about eight months because kale has the ability to pull up sodium. I've got another one that's got chives right now, and I'm waiting for an analysis to come back to see if the chives knocked it down as well. Um, it's really hard to deal with sodium. It's very hard to deal with sodium, especially in water restrictive regions like New Mexico. We just can't dump it. Um, algae has the potential. I could use high salt content water and move it over and grow algae and let them assimilate nutrients and then use that algae for nutrition or soil uh, applications as well. Um, that's challenging. Do you have any thoughts on um, sodium? Well, that's, that's, why, that's why I went there. I was wondering if you were adding it to your spirulina uh, to see if that would knock it back or or if you thought about putting a couple of mangrove groves in the in the greenhouse to help pull it out well but, what we did Layton, over the last year is i installed a 10,000 gallon catchment uh, cistern so we're catching rainwater now off of our rooftop and in our aquaponic systems where we were seeing it build up, we're strictly using rainwater now. And so the kale did bring it down. The chives have brought it down. And my, I've got to wait for the results to come back. Um, switching over to rainwater has helped as well. And last time we got analysis, it was down to 20, which was where our source water used to be. Beautiful. So Beautiful. it can be done. Uh, our colleague, uh, George Brooks out at Mesa in Arizona, uh, community college does aquaponics. They're struggling with sodium content and he's having his growers do dilutions on the regular. And uh, I just, I can't see that as the, as the solution for Arizona. No, agreed. And have you, have you suggested that he uh, look at the work that you've done? Yeah, of course. Oh yeah. Okay. One of those. And, Anyways. Yeah. Well, they've got students, they'll figure out what they want to do, but they're going to have to figure something out. Yep. Yep. Um, I would love if you would plug Santa Fe Community College, because I think you have, like sure. you said, you're getting masters, you're getting PhDs. The programs that you have and that you've built off of, you know, Eric's foundation are just incredible. So so the um, so Ken just put up the website, everybody there. And when you're rewatching this, just pop onto our website to look at the program itself. That shows you what a degree would uh, consist of. I have a one year certificate. Uh, pathway and then a two-year associate's degree. And if you come in with a degree already, you waive all the gen ed. So in one year, you can get a certificate here. Uh, do, does anybody need a certificate from SFCC in controlled environment agriculture? Probably not. 
uh, you could probably go to Plenty or Bowery or Bright Farms and uh, go through their HR department and try to get an entry level job. But this this certificate gives you a credential. It shows that you're connected with myself. Um, Leighton mentioned Eric Highfield. I'll mention quickly as the founder of this program, and he's a big uh, uh, grower now with automated uh, hydroponic systems on grand scale, 40 to 100 acres, uh, all automated. No humans ever touch the product. So we're really leading in a lot of these innovative ways. Um, Pedro Casas is my greenhouse manager. He has 20 years of experience. He was the best uh, grower in Puerto Rico and had a great business. Uh, Ken put the picture up. Um, the other things that people could do to follow me is I'm on Instagram. It's at Aquaponics Charlie. And I'm also on TikTok at Aquaponics Charlie and um, Facebook. Facebook is slash SFCC Greenhouse for Santa Fe. There you go. Uh, Ken's on the ball. So if you follow those, uh, I educate there. I don't just uh, show off. I'm not just showing what my students are doing, although I do a lot of that because it's so impressive what we do here. Um, last semester, it was the orange and lavender broccoli and the fractal Romanescos. And, you know, these are beginning students doing all of this. And then the aquaponic production coupled with fish and we slaughter fish. I teach how to euthanize fish and we're making ceviche out the backside of the table and we're eating it before we leave the room. Uh, so if anybody has a year uh, to spend in Santa Fe, we're pioneers. Again, I have more experience than most people. My technician, Pedro, has uh, as much are a little bit less. He was one of my former students, but we have a lot. And that's why we brought the conference to the um, to Albuquerque in September. Again, Ken already put a link on that. Uh, he'll show another one in a bit. Uh, what we're doing for that conference, there you go, is we're doing a uh, pre-conference workshop here at Santa Fe Community College. So it's a full day aquaponics introductory with some deep dives as well. It's not just an introduction uh, because it's a full day. So from food safety, I'm going to have from Aqualitas, I'm trying to get Danielle to come talk about the potentials for cannabis uh, coupling. I like to call it the aquaponic chronic. And I think every state has some potential um, because right now every state's growing and the big corporations are kind of coming in and taking over and there's no room for a small scale grower. But you could be that me medium scale grower that has that aquaponic niche that people are gonna to wanna to buy that. It may not be certified organic, uh, but it's aquaganic. It's some kind of label that people know about the quality, about the sustainability and such. So we're having that pre-conference workshop. It's very affordable uh, the day before the conference. The conference is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, September 15, 16, 17. And on the 16th, we're doing a half a day of tours. So people are getting on buses from Albuquerque and coming here to Santa Fe Community College. And then I have spawned another facility. One of my students built an indoor facility. Uh, they're called Desert Verde, and that'll be on the tour as well. And that's a tilapia room. And the grow room is horizontal racks stacked vertically, vertical towers. It's quite impressive. All that food is sold through uh, channels like school systems and senior citizen centers. And so that's a whole good story to talk about, too, is how do you market your food, uh, your medicine? Um, and as far as food, we found that restaurants are a pain in the ass. Uh, they want little bits of quantity. Uh, they go on vacation when they want. If they don't need it, they call you last minute. It's hard to find parking to go to all these little restaurants. And we have a system here in New Mexico, uh, New Mexico grown. And if you're, uh, you get your GAP certifications and you do everything right with food safety, you have an open contract to deliver to school systems and senior citizen centers. And so all the produce is sold, which is really the obstacle in the economic viability of these farms is can you sell all the product? Usually you can if you can sell all the product, they can sustain these farms. But usually people are busy trying to build a farm and grow fish and and train plants and they don't focus on the markets. So if you can get your food out, these farms should sustain themselves. But I can say in all my career, I've never seen an indoor farm economically viable. Maybe with the cannabis world, probably with the cannabis, uh, but food farms indoors under light using that energy. If you don't have an energy angle, uh, you, you, you haven't made it. And I can't see any indoor food farms that have more than a three or five year track record in existence right now. Yes, yeah, so agreed. The economics is brutal. But, you know, as 
free energy becomes a reality, then that will shift as well. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about organic certification. So where is that with with aquaponics? I mean, that was always the the, the elephant in the room as to because it didn't have soil, it couldn't be called organic. Have, has there been any headway with that? So it's, it's interesting to hear you present it that way, because since the rules came out in 1990, that's, that's how long the organic program is. It's not that old. Since the rules came out in 1990, hydroponics and aquaponics has been allowed. It continues to be allowed. It's currently allowed. There's no confusion whatsoever. I don't know why people are confused. I do, honestly, because there's... Perhaps, perhaps in Canada, there's some confusion in Canada. Aquaponics is permitted in Canada. Um, hydroponics isn't. Um, yeah, and even that's about to change. Um, Canada's a different beast. Yeah. But in the U.S., it's very clear cut. Hydroponics is allowed and always has been. Aquaponics is allowed and always has been. You have to follow the organic standards. You have to work with a certifying agency that will certify water-based farming. You can't use any prohibitive substances. You have to use allowed substances. You have to have your organic farm system plan. So just like any other farmer, you put that together, you work with an agency and you can be certified. I have had, uh, I've worked and trained farmers. Um, Miles Harston is a great name uh, that's been in this industry for a long time. Uh, he was the first certified organic aquaponic grower in the U.S. in uh, Indiana. Aqua Ranch was the name of that farm. And I believe they were 1997, so seven years after the standards came out. Um, aquaponics has been certified. Friendly Organics, out, uh, Friendly Aquaponics out in Hawaii had a bunch of their farmers certified as organic. Um, I know why it's confusing is because there's an agenda by the soil growers to fight certification of hydroponics and aquaponics. That's why there's confusion. They are purposely throwing fake media, fake news, fake stories up there, and it's never been disallowed. It's always been allowed. Um, somebody said on chat, and it was way back in the chat, and, it, and I'm not seeing all the chat, but somebody said, it doesn't matter how you grow, just grow. And that's really how I feel. We need more nutritious food for humans. I have rarely found a hydroponic farmer criticizing soil farmers and the way that they're doing it and that they should stop doing what they, there it is. However you grow, whatever you grow, just grow. Um, I've rarely seen a hydroponic grower combat a soil grower saying, oh, you're doing things wrong. You, should, you shouldn't be growing. But I often see soil farmers telling me I'm doing things wrong. My food's not nutritious. You shouldn't grow food. They attack this food system. And to me, we need more organic food out there at an affordable price. They, they see this as a threat to their industry. If aquaponics and organic hydroponics took off at scale, then these little farms that really started this movement, uh, they're going to lose their shirts, in my opinion, as organics yeah. goes bigger. Uh, Charlie, yes. I, I appreciate that, those comments. I think that's great. And, and you know, we're, we're, what Ken has done here, the overarching umbrella is, is all about the biology. And, and that's, that's, I think, you know, whether it's living soil or living water, I think there's a real strength there. And that's why I'd love to see more hydroponic uh, growers use more biology in their systems. Um, and that's where I was going to ask you about living water. Here, yeah. with, the, with a lot of our living soil growers, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, guilty of this, I do often use bugs in a jug, right? When I design soils, I'll get my Bacillus subtilis and I'll get my Pseudomonas and I'll get my Lactobacillus and I'll throw it all in there and whatever. Is there a, a comparable thing in, in aquaponics? Do people try to say, okay, well, I know I need some extra siderophores for, for iron. Um, do you inoculate water? Some people do. Uh, I think the more we study that microbial aspect of what's happening in the systems, we may be able to supplement to benefit these systems. Um, as a purist, I can say that the beneficial microbes that drive the, especially the nitrification cycle of ammonia to nitrite to nitrate to, to the plant food, and really the whole suite of, um, of mineralizing microbes, they're ubiquitous. They're in our environment. A soil farmer doesn't necessarily have to buy them and inoculate their soil. They can produce them. They can get endemic microbes and, and, and proliferate them. And so in my situation, I'm a little um, 
hesitant to take a system that's six years, the, my bigger systems here are six years in development. In the Caribbean, I had a system that was 14 years in development. I fed the fish every day and managed plants and managed the solid waste um, to a place where it developed its own microbial ecosystem. And the plant production, you cannot compete with it. Uh, everybody who's tried to beat the UVI system as far as yield and quality have not been able to. And this is a system that had no supplements, no brewing of any bacteria, no buying of a product and inoculating it. Um, I have a feeling that sometimes when we inoculate to maybe benefit that system, that that system is not conducive to that, that microbe lasting. And so you have to buy it again, and then you have to buy it again, and then you have to buy it again, and just continues that process because it's not an ecosystem where that species wants to live and wants to thrive. You think you want it to live there. You think it may help with iron. You think it may help, uh, um, I don't know, another nutrient uptake or maybe solids um, remineralization. Um, but I'm not sure of maybe unintended consequences as, as well. And especially when I think if you really watch a system over time, it develops into a robust system. But I see a lot of people, so they start a system and six weeks later, they want to make it better. And they go make a product and they add and they never let it really establish this ubiquitous community that's already there. Um, I have a like, question. Yeah. Okay. Because we talk about dancing <laughs> in soil where the biology gathers together and creates something that's not there. You're basically saying you, that's happening in the, the water column in your system is it's growing what it needs to, to have happen. Is that, am I hearing that right? Yeah, and that's why we do a lot now. Um, there's a lot of researchers that are taking samples of different systems and they're looking at what developed in the California system versus the Santa Fe system versus the New York system. And these are completely closed loop systems where we're not introducing a lot of microbes. But what happened naturally? What developed in those systems? What microbes really uh, developed there? Because Av, if you give me a product that you says works perfect in your environment, it may not work here because I have a different community that's developed here. Um, I relate this sometimes to aquaculture. If you if you look at a, um, a, um, a drone image over Kentucky State University, where I went to school, you'll find their pond community. And you'll see that there's 60 ponds out there. And those 60 ponds could be managed the exact same way from filling to uh, managing the alkalinity and the pH, uh, fertilization. And when you look over a drone, there's 55 different colors. There's 55 different microbial communities that form naturally in all these environments. So I just think we're so different that it's hard for me to get one species that's gonna do something. I'm also a very busy farmer. If I'm farming fish and plants and marketing that, do I also want to farm microbes? Do I want to farm beneficial insects? Do I want to make fish feed? Do I want? So there's a lot of things that could be possible here. I personally don't do it. Uh, there are people who are working a lot with, and uh, you've probably worked with some of the microbes with some of the aquaponic systems you worked in and probably seen some benefits. Uh, there's often talk about a lactobacillus addition that's going to help your system really remineralize and break down solids that are building up in your system uh, to keep your system clean. Well, in my opinion, why don't you have a clean system on the front end? Why don't you have filters that work? Why, why do you have debris under your raft beds and in your media beds? Why don't you have a better design system that you don't need to go create or brew a species of, of microbe to put into your system that may control that problem and then knock out because they've lost all their organic matter to live on? And I just don't like the cyclical thing of introductions to an aquaponic system. I like to find more of a, a steady state. And, and are you doing that strictly out of, uh, you know, pH, water temperature, water quality, or are there other additives that are so integral in that ecosystem to establish it? I'd say for 30 years, I went with a, uh, a mantra that UVI created, add iron, calcium, and potassium. Um, and this was, again, before we really understood what's under the black box. And uh, we knew that uh, plants are hogs of potassium and calcium. Uh, we knew that plants needed a lot more iron than fish. And then we often don't put these ingredients in the fish diets. 
Um, so we understood that. And so as I regulate pH, uh, for a long time, I just regulated with a potassium base or a calcium base, boom, boom, alternating. Um, often, if I'm just with a leafy green, I'll just use calcium. If I'm trying to go into a fruiting crop, I'll do that alternating. So I get that uh, potassium bumped up. And I have stick, stuck with an iron addition every three weeks throughout my entire 30 years. I never worry about iron. When I get my analysis back, it's always right there at the three to five, two to five ppm, right where I want it. So it's mostly been with those. Uh, again, I know people want to do something different. Um, there was a, a conference a few years back when our pioneer researcher, Wilson Leonard, said, you know, aquaponics belongs in the hands of the tinker. We all want to change it. We all want to do it better. But this UVI system that set the model for the rest of the world to kind of follow, everybody has tried to change it from the solids removal device to the fish tank layouts. And this is where Wilson came in, even adding 50 percent hydroponic nutrients. He says that. Nobody has beat this system as much as you want to try and you're going to spend a year looking at microbes that you're going to throw in this system. There's a good chance you're not going to beat the system as it is without these supplements. Uh, supplements are also a cost to a farmer. It's the, either the time or the money. And so I've been a farmer. I know how freaking busy you can be. Um, I see I get all. Layton said the word the other day or earlier, aqua shyster, and it's people coming at you. You know what you need and you know what you need and you should do this. You got to buy this. I don't even have time much for data entry and spreadsheets and analysis. I am old school with a piece of paper. I want to walk in, look at that, see what's happening. I can make a change in three minutes, walk out the door. Um, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant to go into a new direction when I know the past works so well. Yeah, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> but uh, I look forward to this young generation opening up that hood, looking under uh, the microscope and all these different components from your fish tank to your solids removal to your media bed. You know, all the different components, there's potential to improve that microbial efficiencies by supplements. So I do look forward to seeing that. I like these conferences because I see the young people come in with these new ideas um, and it's fascinating. I'm not against it. Of. Yeah, it, it agreed on 100%. You got to let let the kids tinker. Uh, that's how they learn. That's how they learn. And and the last question, because I know we got a hard stop in four minutes. Yeah. Has anybody developed the, the, the insect fish food that we talked about 13, 12 years ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And how is it? How does it work? I mean, is it? Is um, it it's it's mostly going to hit the um, omnivorous to vegetarian fish, your um, carnivorous fish that a lot of people like to eat. They're not going to do as well on an insect-based diet. The the fish oils have such a perfect amino acid profile for fish. That's why fish eat fish to grow fish. Um, because it's the perfect profile and we can't find uh, a perfect replacement for that. So I think um, carnivorous fish, your bass, your walleye, your pike, um, those fish are always going to have fish meal in their diets, in my opinion. So the insect um, diets that we're looking at, uh, they're more for sustainable food production. So we need to stop eating carnivorous fish and we need to start eating lower on the trophic level if we want to support sustainability. Tilapia is the ideal fish. Um, a lot of people say they don't like tilapia. In my opinion, it has no taste. So you have to know how to cook to like tilapia. So tilapia, I call it the tofu of fish, it's a piece of white meat. That's what we should be eating more of. And honestly, I'm a fish farmer, but I'm leaning more towards plant-based diets in my life. We need to get rid of eating meats of all kinds and just eat the algae eat the plant-based diets. You'll get all your omega-3s by just squirting some algae in your mouth. We don't have to go through that intermediate step. So, you know, maybe one of my last take-homes here is uh, to push you to consider not eating fish, <laughs> but uh, focus on those plant-based diets and eating low on the trophic level. Um, make wise decisions when you're out at the marketplace, okay, in the restaurants. The days of tuna and walleye and pike may be passed if you're concerned about the future of our planet. Start eating a little more sustainably. And if we have enough time, can you bring us up to speed on the algae work? Oh, yeah. we lead a consortium of algae and um, anybody who wants information, there's a couple of kin as able to ACES, A-C-E-S. It's an algae consortium of education systems, maybe ACES. And another one is Algae Foundation. Everybody should look at that because there's free courses there. 
Uh, there's a course on microalgae and a course on macroalgae. These are 16-week courses. It's all free. You don't get a certificate of completion unless you pay for the course, but it's all free. Um, there's a lot of YouTube's embedded and what's the future of algae. So algae for soil remediation still is probably the top of what we're doing here, the top demand for what we're doing here. Uh, we got into algae for biofuel production. And when we look at the uh, processes of growing, harvesting and extracting, uh, it's probably $8 a gallon right now on the industry to produce fuel for your vehicle. So it's really not there yet. Uh, one thing we've done over the last year, we worked with a company that's looking at earth lined materials. They can take earth and create a, a concrete out of earth. So the biggest cost in algae farming for biofuels is the plastic liner of the ponds. So if you can imagine 100 acre ponds out here in New Mexico and remote location, 100 acres of plastic liners, that's $20 million. And every time they get a puncture, it's incredibly hard to fix those liners and they often throw stuff away. So we're working with a company that has a special sauce to turn earth into concrete. Um, so if they can start making ponds at that scale with no liners, we can reduce the cost of algae as biofuel by 75%. It's shocking how much. So we're working that direction to get algae as biofuel uh, down to the price point we want it. Uh, we're looking at algae. We have a spirulina farm, so human nutrition. We package that. Uh, one of our growers does. It was a former student. And he sells that for $100 a um, uh, hundred grit. No, more than that. It's a uh, it's $100 a pound it comes out to. So when it's dried, it's, it's a product and it's 65% protein using very little resources from our planet as well. Algae for remediation, we're using it to clean up um, toxic mine waste. So there's a billion gallons of waste out in Grant's area uh, that's all contaminated with uranium. We're gonna have algae assimilate the uranium so they can use the water on site to keep the dust down. They can't even use that water to keep dust down now. And then we can take the algae and dry it, incinerate it, and we have a very small concentrated uh, uranium to throw out. Uh, we're looking at brackish water here in New Mexico. A lot of our groundwater comes up brackish. This was an old seabed in a lot of places in the world, in America here, uh, we have brackish water. What do we do with it? Let's grow algae. Let's grow algae and start an oyster production facility nearby. Grow algae and whatever you want to use that algae for. Uh, you can have industry around there. So we're looking at oyster cultivation. We're looking at seaweeds for food cultivation with that as well. And finally, something we're doing with algae is most greenhouses have a discharge. Uh, most hydroponic facilities drip to waste and you have a discharge on the backside that often goes unregulated. It is regulated, but it's often not seen. And so we, we say that we're going to use algae and we're doing this already to clean up that those nutrients, assimilate it, now we have clean water that can be discharged back to the river, but we have this amazing algae fertility that can be used for soil applications as well. Algae is a really great model for holding on to nutrients. Uh, Leighton, we could talk forever. I'm doing a lot of work with biochar these days as well. I'm finding it to be a tremendous media for hydroponics. A lot of people talk to me about what ratios are you using, biochar to perlite or biochar to cocoa. I am straight up 100% biochar, and my, these are the strongest plants in my systems right now. And obviously all that's a waste product. We use pecan shells for our biochar and just bringing that loop as tight as we can. I take, I'll, I'll also end with this. I take all my green waste now and it all goes into vermicompost. So I have a quarter acre greenhouse, all green waste and I'm getting wood waste from our woodworking department. And we're turning all of our waste into vermi castings and we're making teas with it and we're growing more hydroponic food with what would have been our waste. So we're closing that loop as tight as possible. Dude, I love you. I love the work you're doing. It's just I appreciate all of you for doing the work you're doing. This is so important. As I go to meetings now, I'm reminded by the common president of a college or whatever, that this is a matter of national security. What we're doing, you all, whether we're building new soils, uh, you know, growing food and saving soils, this is so important to keep the work going. So thanks again for you guys. And we'd love to have you back on in the near future and, and, and continue the conversation. So. That was absolutely phenomenal. And Ken, thanks for all the links. Everybody, the Aquaponics Conference. If you didn't catch the link, it's easy to find. You'll visit with me. You'll see our facilities. I'll try to get Leighton out there too. So uh, 
let's let's maybe have a meetup in Albuquerque, September 14 through 17. Awesome. Awesome. I do got to jump. Thanks, everybody. Yes. Again. Thanks, Thank Charlie. Time, Charlie. All right. Oh, and I've had to jump too, guys. So, Layton, do you have anything to, to add before we call it a day? Uh, there's just so much more, um, you know, and, and this is, again, why we try to do a two-hour podcast, because we were just getting into the meat and potatoes, and, and we had to shut down. So, we'll definitely have Charlie back on. We'll get into biochar, because he's using that instead of hydrotin. Um, and other growth mediums, which is, which is fantastic. And, you know, talking about closing those loops and, and, you know, again, this is, it's so important and, and, and to, you know, get the word out that there's these places that you can go get educated um, for very short money and, and literally leave. If you just get that one certificate, you can get a job almost anywhere with that certificate because it shows that you understand electrical, plumbing, water, crops, fish, mm -hmm. It dovetails to pretty much everything um, within food production industry. So it it's probably the most powerful document for the money um, that you'll ever get compared to any college degree. Um, no, this is a tenth of the price and way more powerful. So I hope that was an honest plug for Santa Fe because I love what they've done down there and continue yeah. to do. So I guess on that note, um, I guess I'll take Poe for an early walk and uh, call it a day. Okay, guys. Well, uh, as for what's going on, we have uh, – um, oh, gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, Dave um, Downer, who created the first legal cannabis event in Calgary on government property tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. we got Andy Lopez uh, Wednesday at 7 Pacific. We've got Luna and maybe another new host on Thursday, and we'll keep you uh, updated. But other than that, guys, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Ken, as always, for doing the back work. Love you, brother. You bet. You bet.